You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Celebrating another issue of Zizava is an occasion, very auspicious in ever so many ways. Of course, under the stewardship of Laura Kogan and Oscar Villon, uh, Zizava over the years, yes. They continue to produce these simply gorgeous and very thoughtfully produced and kind of the creme de la creme of your poetry and your prose and artwork and and so much more. And we're celebrating the Bay Area issue tonight, so uh, very excited about that. With an all-star cast, um, many people which have been here at City Lights, so it's kind of a homecoming, so we're really, really happy. And I will now turn it over to Oscar. Welcome back again. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you everyone. Oh, my goodness. Let me try this. Uh, thank you everyone for coming out. Uh, happy New Year, by the way. Uh, well, you know. So far, so, yeah. And could get better. It could get better. But uh, just New Year then. Hey, New Year. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming out. God bless you for not only stay at home and watch the Democratic debate. I don't know why you would uh, it's, uh, must see TV. But uh, you're here. Thank you for the first of our events, uh, celebrating the Bay Area issue. Um, this is, uh, uh, Laura and I put in a, a lot of work in trying to figure out uh, a, a themed issue that gives some sense, because it can't be definitive by any stretch of imagination, but some sense of the work that's being done now in, in, in our uh, literary community, but also the stuff that's come before, and, um, and hopefully give people some sort of narrative behind the, um, the, the challenges of being a writer in the Bay Area, but also the joys of it, and the joys being in terms of the work that's being produced, which I think um, is as good if not better than it's ever been, you know, for the past, I'd argue, five, six decades. I, mean, I don't mean that as an exaggeration, but that's absolutely true. Um, the quality of the poetry, the quality of the fiction, the quality of nonfiction being done by all these folks with so many different voices um, is, um, is, uh, 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 is phenomenal, uh, not only because it's just happening, but also given, again, the sort of constraints and the pressures that everyone's living under to still be doing the sort of thing I think is, is highly commendable. So this was, for Laura and I, kind of our, I guess for lack of a better word, love note to the, uh, to the Bay Area. And uh, you know, for all of us to keep doing what we're doing and doing it at such a high level. Now I sound like a football coach. That's a football coach line. You guys are playing hard at a high level. You're practicing hard. You don't care who you meet on the field. And I'm proud of you and I love you. <clears throat> oh my gosh. Okay. So, um, again, this is the first of our three events, and uh, so the, the folks will be here tonight um, will be uh, 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 six folks. Usually we do five, but again, just while everyone is in the issue, uh, is in the Bay Area. So uh, that's why we have to do three events. But before we, uh, I want to begin, though, with uh, uh, our first reader, this is Paul Wilmer. Uh, Paul is a poet, critic, journalist, member of the National Book Critics Circle, and a frequent contributor to Zizava not just in terms of uh, the, the print, but also for our website. He does some wonderful reviews for us there and Q&As. His nonfiction piece uh, in this issue is called Unsentimental Education. And it's about, well, it's about Lowell, and it's about um, 
high schools, and it's about the literary goals and literary aspirations. So I thought it'd be nice to begin with that. So could you give a warm round of applause to Paul Roman? So much, Oscar, and to you and Laura for your amazing support and uh, it, you know an incredible issue. And I have to say, I city lights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got here early, and I saw Peter shoving down chairs for everyone. I mean, there's like all kinds of work that goes on beyond this behind the scenes that no one realizes that it really has to be acknowledged. So I know six people, a lot of people. Trying to keep it short. Okay. <laughs> Unsentimental Education is the name of the piece, as Oscar said, and it's a, a little bit of a nod to Flaubert, although kind of well known, he was like the least sentimental person on earth. But, uh, anyhow, a bit of a preamble, so bear with me. Everything we do now is most likely something we've done before, and we'll almost certainly repeat. Where it was, ego shall be, as the currently unfashionable Sigmund put it. The illusion that any of us are different in any essential respect from the squalling infants who left our mother's wombs is a category error, a particularly Western, even more Californian form of post-enlightenment wish fulfillment. Hindsight may be 2020, but it's an arbitrary construct, a way to make sense of what we didn't understand then in the light of what we don't know and likely never will. And I guess this is what's called the journalism burying the lead. Now moving on. <laughs> Looking back at my life as a teenager arriving in San Francisco from New York in the mid-60s, just as the acid was hitting the fan was a change in emotional as well as physical temperature. Like most, or like many kids, I was inherently resistant to change and was initially put off by the sheer Californian healthiness in Archie Andrews and Betty Cooper and Ruderdale of it all. So many blonde people, surfers, and Lowell High School, way out in the fog of the Sunset District near Stonestown in San Francisco State, was considerably different from Horace Bound, the prep school I'd attended the previous year as part of a brief, familiar adventure in upward mobility, let alone JHS 52, the Inwood ju Public Junior High I'd gone to before that. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, known in those days as Lou Alcinder, lived in the Dykeman Street housing projects in the neighborhood, and we'd sometimes seen him hanging out looking gangly on the concrete basketball courts or towering over the crowd at the local library. Lowell was the academic high school, the SF equivalent to Bronx Science or Stuyvesant, where a high-achieving mix of largely Jewish and Asian-American kids gathered to compete. But it seemed considerably more low-key to me, at least by East Coast standards, that I, I tried to adjust. After a brief respite in Sausalito's Hurricane Gulch, my folks, who were inveterate City dwellers took a flat on Franklin Avenue between Broadway and Pacific. I rode the 47 Van Ness bus down to Market Street, then transferred to the crowded Muni M line to get to Lowell. It was a parallel, though considerably different, experience to ride in the subways in New York, freezing in the winter and overwhelmed by sweaty citizens in the summer with Miss Ryan Gold advertisements above the graffiti tagged windows. I was disoriented, jolted out of my comfort zone, and trying to fit in with the rich kids at Horace Mound, with their parents' fancy apartments on the Upper East Side had been an uncomfortable fit, too. Jack Kerouac had attended the school on a football scholarship, too, and William Carlos Williams before him. But poets were by no means the alumni most celebrated by these Ivy League strivers, destined for futures at Harvard or Yale and Wall Street or D.C. Getting into Columbia or Cornell was considered de classe by comparison. 
but I quickly discovered that first impressions notwithstanding, gnarly surfers by no means dominated my new surroundings. It turned out that Lowell had a sizable boho contingent, as I found when one of the first girls I met at school handed me a button with the legend, Psychedelicized Suburbia. <laughs> this after I established my cred by telling her I had attended one of the first anti-Vietnam protests the year before. Drug culture was just hitting the scene, though I was only dipping my fingers and finger and stem seeds in the matchboxes where the weed was then stashed before it graduated to lids, let alone bales. I struck up a friendship with a long-haired pal named John, last name omitted to protect the innocent. <laughs> a Presidio Heights kid, his parents both hosted chamber music concerts in their well-appointed living room with original artwork by Paul Clay hanging in their halls. It was a far cry from what I was accustomed to in the middle-class apartments of Washington Heights. Fitzgerald was right. The rich are different from you and me, so it's probably needless to say that John was sometimes angry and confused as we negotiated our way through our respective post-puberty rights. But as a quintessential good boy, I got a kick out of those who felt the freedom to act out, and his sardonic wit kept the problems we inevitably faced in unsensible perspective. After settling in, I recruited John as co-editor of the School Literary Magazine. We called it Wonderful from As You Like It. Oh, wonderful, wonderful, and most wonderful, wonderful, and yet again wonderful, and after that, out of all hooping. We probably could have used a little more hooping and a lot less wonder, but we balanced the flower ch child dippiness with a Dylan quote. Anyone who's ever slept in the backseat of a car knows that I'm just not a school teacher. <laughs> We didn't really have meetings as with a magazine. Neither of us liked the formality of such gatherings and were too full of ourselves to welcome much dialogue. But nevertheless, we soon gathered a formidable group of talented soon-to-be's. And uh, I just, if you'll humor me, I'm going to uh, go through some of the poets I mentioned in the, uh, who were in the magazine. And I want to thank them because they were uh, kind enough to let us reprint some of their high school work in, in, in the issue. Like Jessica Hagedorn, a budding Filipino-American poet, Long before she rose to fame with dog eaters and other works of biting wit and bar politics, Jessica wore a black leather jacket and her boyfriend wore a menacing motorcycle. Even then, she was not someone to be messed with lightly. Her poem, Love Song, was sexy, smart, and filled with adolescent angst. The first time I died, I cried inside, but the music was too good not to hear again, so I fled from the dead, and the second time death came to me, I could see your realness and flesh Taste bitter saliva kisses. Oh, your anger was too good not to hear again. So I reconsidered fakery, yours and mine, and all the writhing corpses and gods, boys and girls in their desperate silks and fluid contortions. Jessica's polar opposite, Carol Snow, a preternaturally quiet girl from Diamond Heights with a gift for Dickinsonian chart remarks, offered a gnomic prose poem. As if you were there and I were here and you were to receive, receive a sacred epistle written even late at night with a song that remains a secret in the back and mother in the front and someone else as well here. As if you were someone who receives sacred epistles and one who receives, yay, even privileged glimpses into, you know, heart. This is not one, but as if you did, as if you were a bearded-minded cripple or a man who teaches by day or plays at it and goes home to smoke a cigar. As if you were someone like a beetle who keeps getting hearts and minds on your birthday as gifts, you know, and cards drowned in love. As if you, as if you were someone I didn't know, dear sir. 
at the matriculating and how at Cal, where she was mentored by Robert Haas, I think that actually came a little later, Carol became a recognized poet with haiku-like work capturing moments recollected in tranquility with emotion rippling beneath the surface. I just want to show you a photovisual aid. I've got Carol's <laughs> first book here. Where is it? Artists and Models, maybe they have it here. Atlantic Monthly Press, very good book. I got it on a Libris or something. <laughs> Russell Leon, the son of a Chinatown newspaper man, offered tough, taut images accompanied by his own work. Russell later wrote several volumes of well-received fiction, memoir, poetry, and artwork, and served as the longtime editor of UCLA's Amer Amerasia Journal. Here's what he offered us. I paint an ordinary face of dabs of dark oil and dull eyes swept beneath chalk circles, shivering holes of nostril and clenched mouth of red paint, holding a smearful of sensation. Not bad for kids starting out. We were lucky then, luckier than we knew. And just to skip ahead a little bit. Our loosely gathered group of young literateurs hasn't stayed in significant touch. I think we have a sense, however tacit, that we owed it to each other to allow each, us, each of us to grow up in our own way, assuming we somehow survived the struggles of our time. We respected each other's right to walk our own road. The convergence may not have always been harmonic, but in a time when everything feels up for grabs, I know that's every time, but perhaps even more so now, it's heartening to remember where we were as well as where we may be going. Life and literature, in whatever order you choose to put them, were there for the taking. I believe that then and believe that now. No prayers to the Godfather. <laughs> School's out, but we're still here forever. Thanks very much. So let's continue some more poetry. Um, our next reader is Mae Cortado Bloom. Her writing has appeared in Calamity, Lumens, Split Lip, and Columbia Poetry Review, and elsewhere, and her poems appear in the Bay Area issue. Will you please give a warm welcome to Mae Cortado Bloom? Really exciting to be reading, reading a City Lights for the first time. I'm saying first because I'm an optimist. <laughs> um, but yeah, I love long dreams. It's great. Um, so I'm going to read just a few favorites and some stuff that I'm working on, and then I'll finish with the two poems that are in the issue. Um, this is called Muscle Memory. One myth. People forget things. Fact. The heart is a muscle. The heart rides bicycles. Two, the red-headed old woman and I stand across the street from each other, each with a cigarette and a reason to stay put. The equinox comes to roost, bearing the bridge's tips. Three, not everything is born unfinished, speckled, tender-headed, a blind and screaming gamble, but we are. Four, it's simple, love bothers all. I walk with you into a field full of landing craft. My feet lead all the way back to the car. Like the little mermaid, I feel a certain pressure to change. Five, commit to memory, give her your keys. The myth of return rules the world. Uh, this is called Declarative Love Poem, and it's just a bunch of sentences. Finally, I understand the ending of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. The other morning I asked, is it wet out there or is it just me? I started writing with my left hand, I still don't know your mother's name. Sometimes when I'm on the train and I think of you, I have to put on my sunglasses. 
Only because I'm like that too and not because it's remotely human can I understand how you stood so still so long. Objects in my apartment keep falling over by, my, by themselves and I don't go check. Two necklaces broke in my hands, one after another. Every time I turn around, the bathtub fills. You could call this circumstance. You could call it indecision, shame, dark-mindedness. You could just call. Um, because the Super Bowl just happened, this is like a Super Bowl poem that I wrote a few years ago. I have no idea why I don't watch football. But it's <laughs> um, I have not yet begun to deal Super Bowl Sunday, millennial renderings of patriotic protestations. One, we hold these truths to be selfie-evident that all men are created with no filter, but we can change the world so it's got like a really great vignette effect, no matter what the light was like in real life. Two, give me liberty, or give me whatever comes after liberty, because I can totally wait this out. Three, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what it would take for your country to actually start doing it. Four. I regret that I have but one life to lose for my country because these corpse lords are killing me, man. But to be honest, I could keep losing lives on infinite loop. To be honest, I loved getting sunburned. I miss my childhood pets. I never learned how to tell trees apart. I just want to ride my bike home and mean it. 10 out of 10 would live again every time. Um, so I am one of those poets who just writes a lot but hasn't published a book, which is embarrassing. But I finally kind of started a project which is just um, persona poems about women who um, have either been famously screwed over by men or who killed men. So um, this is the title poem. It's called Judith. Let's hear it for the girls. What's harder to believe than woman? Only the world. Lucretia, Persephone, Deborah, Giselle, all those girls who've been had. Say their names, say this happens again and again. About suffering, the masters were wrong too. It leaves a mess. No damask dress can staunch the wound and a mother can shove a lord, but only once harm's been done. Remember every penetrated breast, certain dooms the only acceptable testimony. Recall the queen of the dead brought down by a single seed. We turn our eyes to the sky, but only because we are tired. We are not confused. It's time we trashed our veils, filled the forest. So many of us that were deathless these days and damage takes chances, keeps the last dance looping till dawn. We can do this. We have washed so much blood from so many clothes. We will name our daughters Judith, we used to love him, but we had to kill him, new songs will say. We will light something, stand in our jammies, ask Judith to steady our hands. Sometimes she holds a clean sword and nobody's dripping head. Sometimes her belly is wrapped in gold. Sometimes Judith and her maid look like they could be in a kitchen slicing ham. So many ways to paint women's work, yet whether she's feeling herself or kinda not sure she just did that, she's done. Um, and it, here's a short one that comes next. Um, I love Caravaggio's painting of Judith because uh, the blood really spurts and it's kind of exciting. Um, and he was able to do it so realistically because he had attended the execution of Beatrice Cenci, um, which if you don't know the story of her, is a fantastic story. I hope they make a movie someday. She was um, a Roman teenager who uh, 
killed her abusive father um, and was executed publicly by the Pope. Uh, so here's the whole poem. Beatrice Chanshin. Blessed are girls who take chances. Um, this is a poem for Lorena Bobbitt. It's called Heaven is Full of Garbage Disposals. <laughs> to everyone who gets that, kudos. Um, it all began with cherry blossoms, cake, a swimming pool. It began again by refrigerator light, as so much does. From the bed to the kitchen, longest walk. The men will say you gotta build a legal bridge from battery to righteousness, but why? We all held the knife, we were grateful. Witness after witness sang of bruise after bruise, parading reasons she did not need. Sometimes you gotta kill me. She cried and the country cried back. She made sure the carving was clean. In heaven, we won't call her crazy to save her. In heaven, she'll cut loose again and again. And now I'll finish with these. Um, I'm going to read No Mesa Last Forever first because I grew up in Arizona, but it stops there, so. Um, no, no offense to anyone who's a fan. Um, no Mesa Last Forever. When I was young, it was rare to see the desert on TV, my own mad planet open on all sides, dirt red as sores split by neon creosote. The desert is a million ways to die, but framing is everything. Wiley Coyote teaches, never look down as you cross canyons. The cloud that sustains you may not extend beyond your ankles, but so what? Imaginary landscapes manifest for the pure of heart. Fulfill your fantasy that you are so tough you can dine on tin cans, smartly carved. Then sweep it away and start hunting. Desire is all there is. Desire is enough. When you finally catch up, you just stand there. That train you imagined has come. This is my last poem, and it's one of my favorites. Um, we Californians. We never admit we have a problem. We compress. We need. We withdraw toxins. Sun-blind and blonde-hearted, we hang around Valhalla, keeping old warriors alive. It's all super casual. Our host, the spectral Spanish king, whose every vein burned blue as winter wind, who left us names for every hillside, has betrothed us to the coast. Her beauty keeps our tempers cool as gold forgotten in a sea cave. We trade treasure for mirage, mirage for treasure. We kill our captors, mindfully, and move on, knowing we have nothing, just one wave and then another, then another, maybe rain. Admittedly, we pay too much attention to the stars, knowing ourselves future smithereens, space dust, and progress. Love ends up on the cutting room floor, but so does evil, so does madness, so does night. Thank you. Um, our next reader is uh, Rita Bonamico. She's the author of the story collection Belly Up, which won the 2018 Believer Book Award. Her writing has been published in Tin House, Noon, Bomb, Guernica, and elsewhere, and her fiction titled Andy Taylor versus Artemis Victor is in the Bay Area issue. Would you please give a warm welcome to Rita Bowling. I love Zizava, and I love this issue, and I'm so excited to read um, just four pages from uh, this excerpt of much longer project I'm working on. 
the title of this excerpt is Andy Taylor versus Artemis Victor. Um, and it's about a youth women's boxing tournament in Reno. Andy Taylor is pumping her hands together, hitting her own flat stomach, thinking not of her mother sitting at home with her little brother, not of her car which barely got her here, not of her summer job lifeguarding at the overcrowded community pool, not of the four-year-old she watched die, the four-year-old she practically killed and his blue cheeks. They shouldn't give teenagers the job of saving children. It doesn't matter how many CPR classes you've taken. She killed the boy with her wandering eyes. His swimsuit had small red trucks on it. He looked like he was made out of plastic. The feel of his thigh when she pulled him from the bottom of the pool, already dead. And the way it was so easy to grip because it was so small. She's not thinking about it. She's looking at the skylight and the light it's letting in on this shithole gym. And she's thinking about the things she always does wrong when she fights. Her lazy left guard, the way her left hand slips away and doesn't protect her face if she's not thinking about it. She's also thinking about the way Artemis Victor will get her. If Andy Taylor doesn't think about this, this fight will be over in a matter of seconds. Andy Taylor needs to think about her pacing and her stomach. Andy Taylor needs to think about her stance. They're still sitting and looking at each other meanly. They know each other, but have never fought before. When you join the Women's Youth Boxing League, this facade of a sports society association makes you pay $200, and then you get a free subscription to their magazine, which profiles its members, young girl boxers, one by one, so you see who's out there, even if they are across the country, and you get a good sense of who you're up against, and you know who they fought, and who they're going to fight, and what their favorite hobby is, because God only knows what kind of a journalist writes this excuse for a magazine, but whoever it is seems to think it's valuable profile information, and that it should be included in every athlete profile, because in every issue there it is. Name, hometown, favorite color, hobby, wins and losses, photo of the girl in gloves. The photo is a wild card because some girls choose to take it in their gym clothes while others choose to take it in halter tops, their hair down, their head tilted, their gloves resting on their hips. Andy Taylor would know Artemis Victor anywhere because Artemis Victor is the youngest of the three Victor sisters, a family of boxers whose parents come to every single one of Artemis's matches with shirts that say Victor, which is, of course, ridiculous. Their proclamation of their daughters winning records on their chests. Everyone knows the Victor sisters and what they've won and what they've lost, and the judges treat Artemis's family like old friends, which in boxing is especially infuriating because the gray area of a call is often so present. And if you know a judge has a special relationship with the participants, you can't help thinking, I'm being slighted. This is the end of me. If only I had parents willing to befriend my coaches. If only I had parents that could get off work, that didn't work, that could come see me win. Mr. and Mrs. Victor sit in folding chairs next to the ring. There are nine other onlookers, other girl fighters, a journalist from the local paper, and Bob, the owner of this gym. 
Arduous Victor is rolling her shoulders. She's looking at Andy Taylor and thinking, you are ugly, I am prettier than you, and I'm going to beat you too. Arduous Victor thinks about being prettier than Andy Taylor because she knows somewhere inside her that no one cares who wins this match, that who is prettier matters more to the world around her, that who is more attractive or more seductive has more power out in the world outside this gym. Artemis sizes up other women physically everywhere. I'm the prettiest woman in the, this room, she thinks. There's only one woman over there who may be prettier if you like girls that look like drug addicts. There are men who like girls who look like drug addicts. When Artemis Victor thinks of herself in the future, she thinks of herself as wildly successful in a big house, maybe in Miami, not a drug addict. Artemis has never been to Miami. Artemis Victor has a teddy bear that has a doll shirt that, that says Victor. That's my girl, yells Mrs. Victor. Artemis Victor always thinks she's going to win. It's not a bad habit to get in if one has that gene where self-doubt can be thrown out the window. It can be beneficial to employ. Artemis Victor hates her oldest sister. Her oldest sister won the Daughters of America Cup four years ago. Her middle sister got a silver. Even if Artemis wins the whole thing, wins the whole tournament, and becomes the best in the world, the best woman under 18 in the world at boxing, she'll still be second best to her oldest sister, Star Victor, because Star became the best in the world before her and is now married with a husband and a child and well on the way to owning her house, if not being rich. Artemis Victor has no idea what it takes to own a house, but she knows what it takes to beat other people, which is what owning property seems like, beating other people at owning a piece of earth and making that piece of earth yours, not to be shared with other people, because the owning of the property is a product of her victory over other humans, as in, you won more dollars than them, so now this slice of land is yours for keeps. It's not that Artemis Victor is stupid. She'd make an excellent banker, though she'll become a wine distributor. It's just that her values are very narrow. She has an insanely good eye for reading people, for knowing what they are thinking under the words they are speaking, for watching how people hold themselves when they talk to you, whether or not they are interested in you. She knows which of her high school teachers to feel bad for. The ones who, whose eyes dart around looking for someone to listen to them. She knows the right way to say a thing to make people think she's interested in hearing them speak. Artemis Victor is also a vegan. She genuinely feels bad for animals. This was part of her profile in the Women's Youth <laughs> Boxing Association magazine, the WYBA. Artemis loves animals. She watched a documentary on the abuse of whales in theme parks and also thinks they should be let free. The referee is in the middle of the ring and is saying things to the girls about rules that they already know and have heard a hundred times before. They nod their heads and get up off their stools and begin to bounce up and down. Andy is bouncing much more than Artemis. Artemis paces forward, steady. They're both wearing silk shorts and tank tops. The elastic on their waistbands makes dents in their skin that will last for hours after they take their shorts off. A week ago, Andy came home and took off her shorts and looked at the red ring of gullies the shorts had left on her stomach. 
She fingered the indentation with her hands. When the marks disappeared an hour later, she was sad not to have them. They seemed like evidence of the work she'd done. She wished she had a black eye from a winning fight to wear around, to show people she was fighting, to show people she was doing something that was hard. Um, our next reader is uh, the poet Kevin Simmons. His books include the poetry collection Ben Tuit and Mad for Meat. His work has been published in the American Scholar Field of Poetry and elsewhere. And his poetry appears in the Bay Area issue. Please give a warm welcome for Kevin Simmons. I'm going to begin with four poems that Zizaba rejected. <laughs> Rain. He begins with an Islamic saying. Children are a woman's wealth, are a woman's wealth on the earth. She knows the Quran doesn't say this, but men have. She chose one who takes it slow and wears ribbed condoms so she can feel something. No matter how dry, she can taste in that mouth too. She's seen three heads slick with rain come out of her. Thank the ceremonial twig that prevented the closure, the tiny hole that tore just enough to take her husband in and keep him. Thank Allah. Thank something. At the Straight Club. This is after Terence Hayes' poem at Pegasus. I'm not here for the music. I tell a mustache the wrist looking guy who said absolutely nothing to me before I left barefoot and big boned into his all. I'm here to check out dudes like you who haven't considered being fucked long enough for it to take. He laughs and I see tiny crescents around his mouth. Too many, I think, for someone so hungry, for that breathlessness beneath the weight of a kiss only two men can bear. He smiles because that's been easier until tonight he bites his bottom lip but doesn't know it while I trace the rim of my rum and coke. They're never appalled, never throw a punch, never say, I'm sorry, man, but they know I'm serious as a knife at the jugular or a greased fist knocking after their buddies are far away, fast asleep, dreaming of double penetration or clicks that squirt. And the only thing between us and the time I won't take to say one reassuring word, to blur the knowing that's ancient and shining and sinks us down, down into the spinning wet and want holiness. Whip, one of my two basketball points. Laced into the name of a man who flew into myth but lived to see his name in leather. His likeness a relief, not as in a sigh of relief, but that of art, when the sculpture remains attached to the background, shaped in the same material. Tell us again of heroes and courts, Hoop after hoop, shot after shot, the cheer formations of the games we master with the lie of leather in our hands. 
Further, you wonder about losing. The door slams and you want to faint. Your mouth goes dry. The most you can do is breathe. You've won before, gone through a door held open for you. You've had to catch your breath. Things are so fast and good. We get wet, we dry. That is weather. That is all. Comfort. Oh, I'm done with the rejected poems. <laughs> Comfort. Soul food is unbroken line of salted scraps master left fry. Ankles filled with butter, bones sucked of marrow like oxygen, empty calories to keep us shooting into our arms or at each other. Generations raised on chemical formulas, our numbing sugar, our insulating fat. Golden cap of hip hop, spiritual jazz, soul, R&B, blues, gospel, what it feeds on to reach that weight. The protein to rage inside the meat. But it's ours, we say, how we feature in the American performance. What are we if not a moon? Seldom does this come up because we've been raised as manure for uncountable fields of sickly white flowers. I'll read one from the issue, selfies. No tumors yet, exposure after exposure, angling for that vantage yet, plain flat yet in relief. Elbow, wrist, and finger, joint effort. What's left out. You swipe, scrutinize for a face that jives with the prescription bystanders should have of your features so you can feature less, more, until each frame contains the same shot. Muscle memory and pout and squint, head tilt and lilt. You do this with your finger like smoothing wrinkles or wiping dust from a screen preening to be seen. And I'll end with redaction of milk. And this is from a letter that Harvey Milk wrote to President Carter in 1978 on behalf of Jim Jones. Redaction of Milk, February 19, 1978. Dear President Carter, Reverend Jones is widely known in the minority communities, a man who remedies for social problems. Highly regarded. Our own board presented honor unanimously. Those attempting to damage Reverend Jones's reputation disrupt the life of his son, a blackmail attempt, bold-faced lies promoting State Department intervention in Guyana. The life of a child at stake, protective parents and Mr. In Reverend and Mrs. Jones, our relations with Guyana jeopardize the great embarrassment of our State Department. Mr. President, the actions need to be brought to a halt. Respectfully, Harvey Milk. Yes. In nine months, they'll be dead. Nine days later, I'll be shot five times, twice in the head. It's dizzying, really, how much I got wrong. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin Simmons, thank you. How are you all doing? You guys doing okay? Yeah? Okay. 
We're down to, to our two uh, final leaders, but before I do, I just want to uh, quickly let you know um, about the other events we're going to be doing behind this. Again, you know, normally we only do about two events um, for each issue. We try to publish as many Bay Area contributors as we can, but since just about everybody uh, was a Bay Area contributor for this one, that's to say everyone was at the time, a couple of people have to leave. Is that, you know, sure not come as a surprise. Um, I, you know, I have to move elsewhere. But so because of that, we, we're doing three. So we're doing this one. And then on um, January 24th, Friday, at East Bay Booksellers, we're have another event. Each of these will probably be lineups. That will be with uh, Matthew Sapruder, Sam Sachs, Andrew Rowe, Nina Schuyler, Sarah Bamala, and Lydia Conklin. And then in early February, um, February 6th, at the Mechanics Institute, we'll be there with Gloria Prim, uh, the photographer Jan Delaney, whose work is featured uh, in this issue, uh, Michael Sears, uh, W.S. DiCaro, Lisa Flynn Goodwood, and possibly, possibly, depending on the schedule, Charlie Jane Andrews. So look out for those. Right. Uh, to introduce our Pink Ultimate, oh, I get to see these on board. That's always good. Our Pink Ultimate reader, uh, Ingrid Rojas Contreras. She's the author of the novel Fruit of the Drunken Tree, which was an Indie Next selection as well as a New York Times editor's choice. And her work has appeared in New York Times Magazine, BuzzFeed Dialogue, and elsewhere. Her fiction appears in this new issue. Would you please give a warm welcome to Ingrid? Two books already, and I, I feel so tempted. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I seem to my mind seems to work either in I can only think in novels or just really really short um, stories. So I've been writing these short shorts for years, um, and I usually start my writing there. I have like a dictionary by my desk, and I open it, um, and then I, based on the random word that I get, I, I write a short short. So I'm gonna uh, read two of these. Uh, the first one is called The Hand. He had asked her to stay, to remain. He held her hand for an hour. The two palms sweated together, and so for many years. Their fingers fused. They daydreamed about the silver line of the blade, how the severed wrist would spew its blood just like a person who'd taken a drink and was then surprised by a joke. One of them, him, they decided, would have to go on about their business holding the other person's hand. In time, her hand that wasn't his would rot and fall in a wet flop. They were unsure, however, if, they, if the organism they called her hand was hers. It felt like his body was the one breathing life into the fused hands, but then the feeling reversed. Under these conditions, severing the hand represented a risk. Who knew which body, his or hers, having been disconnected, would one day try to reach for a door and fall instead into a pile of hair and bone and then rise in a cloud of skin dust? So I think the word for that one was hand. I think it was hand. I'm not sure. Um, this one is uh, the unfinished question. To capitalize on the wreck, 
the two surviving members of the office numbered, cataloged, and organized the loss. There was a spreadsheet of bonuses and negatives. Red numbers flashed across the screen. They climbed the mountain of ash. There were desk drawers breaking the surface of the ash mountain at the top. Inside were a set of keys to the printer room, a tin of mints. The whole building had fallen. The printer room and the printer were both gone, buried with the rest of the unrecovered bodies, the collapsed brick, drywall, and wooden beams. Were the keys a positive or a negative? If you located the keys to a lost place, had you located anything at all? The two members argued, with hands at their hips at the crest of the mountain, that was the wreck, that was the burial. Should the keys be coated green or red? A breeze came just as they felt they would make up their minds. The air felt cool and refreshing. Even the smell of fire, even the distant wailing, felt like something that could happily carry them over into the unfinished question. Thank you. Thank you, Ingrid. And um, last but not least is um, our final reader for the, for the evening, Jaja uh, Lin. She's the author of the novel, The Unpassing, a finalist for the 2019 Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. Her work has appeared in the Paris Review of the New York Times and elsewhere. And her story, Bring Around the Equator, Pockets Full of Acres, is in the Bay Area issue. So please give a warm welcome to Jaja Lin. Pigeon had flown into the classroom, 
and she had swatted it with her notebook and then chased it out by flapping her windbreaker behind it like a giant pigeon herself. On the third class, during the 15-minute break, Delapine and Eva walked to a pond and back. It was a paltry thing, the size of a parking space, but they stood at the edge and peered at the algae, which clumped in places like pureed peas. It had been a week of bombings. Yesterday, a letter bomb in Sacramento said to be the Unabomber's work. Last Wednesday, Oklahoma City, with the death count still rising. Delapine never knew what to say about tragedies. She'd end up sounding mawkish or flippant. She could only think in images, the nine-story hole, papers from file cabinets blowing down the rebel street, a toy truck covered in ash. Eva told her a man had plunged seven floors in an elevator during the blast and emerged unscathed. Another man crawled under his desk while, beside him, the floor dropped away. Week after week, they walked to the pond on their breaks. Eva was thinking of starting a home care business, just an idea, just a thought. They both lived in the East Bay at the time, and they started to walk, then jog, outside of class. Suddenly, Delapine realized Eva was racing. She was not racing Delapine. There was no point to that. But she clenched her teeth and fixed her eyes on a point far down the road. When she reached it, she chose another spot, a rock or shadow, and ran for that too in a way that made Delapine wonder what was at stake. All she knew was that Eva had grown up in Texas, in a tiny, mostly Latino town, an hour's drive from Odessa. During summer floods, cantaloupes from the farms floated down the streets. Later, they rotted in the sun. Her father had disappeared with her brother, leaving behind a house full of women. Eva was different from her five sisters. She was slender, not religious, not a mother, far from home. In the summer, when Delapine tanned, she felt they could have been sisters too, even if Eva's dark spirals of hair stood in sharp contrast to Delapine's thin, weed-colored strands. Sometimes, Eva said, I came out of nothing. She looked Delapine straight on, eyes squinted to sharpen the gaze. A few months into their runs, Delapine found a free <coughs> book in a bin, a paperback from 10 years ago, Running for Women, written mostly by a man. The broad pelvic girdle of women inclines them towards straddle-legged running. <coughs> women, therefore, should try to run with their legs as close together as possible especially on flat turf or pavement. If you are attacked by a rapist on a run, the first thing you should do is to begin a controlled scream. If you are confronted by an exhibitionist, don't give him the satisfaction of a shocked look. There was also a bewildering section titled Hair Removal for the Underarms. 
Delapine used this book as a training manual anyway, though she never mentioned it to Eva. Week one, five-minute warm-up, six 300-yard jogs alternated with 100-yard walks, five-minute warm-down. By week 12, she could toss off a half-hour run, not a jog, not a trot, but a sustained, honest run. They tried a few 5Ks, and as the months and then two years ticked by, moved on to 10K street races, 10K trails up and down the headlands of the North Bay, half marathons, marathons. Eva was fast. The real surprise was Delapine was no longer slow. She thought of her old phys ed teacher, a squat man who stretched his sweat-wicking clothing to capacity. During the rope climbing unit, he looked up their shorts, or so some said, and he was chummy with the girls. But Delapine, he only mocked, saying as she was lapped by the whole class, there goes our track star, and yes, someone's on the rag. In the constant running they now did was a certain hunkering down, a blindered resolve or grit. Once Delapine had pounded out the first 10 or 20 steps, all thoughts vacated her mind, except how many miles had been covered and how many were left. It mimicked her life at work when she calculated the hours until lunch, or how much of the day was left, or how much of the week or year. But her new athletic life was a different kind of life, a second, better life some kind of answer to her first. It had the quality of immense potential. Their times were getting shorter, their distances longer, their bodies more compact. Their lungs were expanding. Everything was expanding. Thank you. Thank you uh, to all our readers, um, uh, Paul Wilner, Maker Tavo Bloom, Rita Bullwinkle, Kevin Simmons, Ruby Brothers Contreras, and John Chan Lin. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. We really appreciate it. This is the first time we've been on this floor. Usually we're up there, and it's not nearly as hot down here. Um, and if you've been up there, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, thank you for coming out. If you don't have a copy of the issue, I think they have none here. Is that right? Peter, you forgot completely. There's, I'm sorry, it's, it's, we were misled. But no, they're over there. There's tons. There's tons of them. And I should also point out too, uh, that may be of interest, we also have some artwork from Lawrence Berlinghetti uh, in this issue as well. And, uh, if, and a phenomenal, I think, and very moving, uh, as it turned out in terms of context, a conversation uh, with uh, Kevin Killian, like Kevin Killian and Dodie Bellamy, again, kind of in the sense of what came before. Um, so thank you all very much, thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.